Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at how the pandemic and our reliance on technology may have accelerated the fourth industrial revolution. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Alan Budenberg, Investment Consultant, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. So this week, we thought we'd have a little bit of a sort of squint into the potential future paths that lie ahead with Will. Hi, Will. Hi, Nikki. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Yourself? Yes. Living the dream, as always. <laughs> you sound like it. <laughs> and our listeners will be delighted to hear we also have Alan Budenberg, who's one of our senior investment consultants. Hi, Alan. How are you doing? Hello, Nikki. Yes, I'm very well. Thank you. Brilliant. So let's start off with you, Will. What's been going on in the world? Have we seen anything of particular import this week? Yes, it's still thankfully quite a bit more sedate than the chaos we can see in our rear view mirror. A lot of the focus at the moment is about the distribution of vaccines. So in supply terms, we in the developed world have secured way more doses per head than we actually require, uh, while in the emerging world, only a fraction of the doses needed have been procured. So, you know, according to UNICEF, um, the world will be producing 18.9 billion doses of uh, the various vaccines by next year. So plenty to go around. However, a very good note from our colleagues over at the Investment Bank points out that the poorest countries have only secured 0.1 times population coverage versus 4.6 times for the richest. And again, we've said it on this podcast before, but redistribution of excess supplies will be central to our ability to sound an eventual all clear from the pandemic. Uh, until then, uh, the more unvaccinated pockets of the world will continue to provide fertile ground for variants such as the Delta, uh, currently, in, uh, you know, currently dominating the, the UK story at the moment. And, and the worst case scenario is that one of these proves, you know, capable of evading the current crop of uh, uh, crop of vaccines. That doesn't seem to be the case at the moment with Delta. That, that, that's not the evidence that we're seeing. But the point is that the relative successes and failures of the national vaccine campaigns could quickly be rendered irrelevant if this is not thought of as a global story. Uh, and I guess it's, you know, the irony of fighting a pandemic in a world that has recently become more fixated on borders, sovereignty and the like. And we know how our listeners have got used to us making recommendations on, well, Cruella, but <laughs> in a in a slightly more um, on topic, the Horizon programme that showcased the incredible innovation of the various teams around the world searching for the way to bring the vaccines to the fall is really a great watch. So highly recommend that. And I don't think we could mark the week without making reference to the five-year anniversary of Brexit or the decision to exit the EU. And, you know, gosh, time is flying. But a lot of the vaccine conversation really, as you just mentioned, there's still a lot that's unknowable and subject to, to a great degree of potential, might there be another variant that, as you said, evades vaccine? How might the economies pan out as we come out of the hardship of, of this pandemic period? But, well, what do you see insofar as these potential paths? What could be a potential outcome? Might we see ourselves in a 
economic boom. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Nikki, that we, we, we don't uh, we don't think that there's at, at any one time there's just one path ahead. There are always myriad potential paths ahead. Um, but certainly you can argue that on many, but certainly not all of those roads ahead, there, there could be a surge in productivity that this crisis may have had a role in catalyzing. The vaccine tech is part of it. Um, however, I think also interesting is the way that several technological breakthroughs of prior years, even decades, coalesced in this crisis to help um, save our economic bacon. So a breakthrough in stuff, uh, so breakthroughs in stuff like you know, reliable laptops, smartphones, high-speed internet and video conferencing tech may have meant a lot less individually than they came to mean collectively in this crisis. Great. And Alan, you are forever talking to to our clients. And so I guess you could bring to life for our listeners the kinds of things that are on investors' minds. What, what do you spend your time talking about? Uh, yes, Nikki, no, there's loads of things we talk about. I'm going to go back a little bit uh, self-facing and just look at what we think about here. So I think Will's talks about where productivity appears in different places. And it's really interesting what's happening to us. So in my job, Nikki, I travel around, speaking to many clients. But before the pandemic, would speak to one, maybe two clients a day. But now we can speak to many different clients. So here, what we found is video calling, which is a te- not, not really a technological breakthrough, but it's adoption of technology. And we're a bank, you know, we're not a technology company per se, as you would see as technology, but we have benefited from, from the adoption of this technology. So I think one of the things that's really interesting today is when we're seeing these technological gains, they come through in different places. So that really neatly summarises both both how you've adapted your way of working with clients and, and they've adapted how they interact with you. But but equally, it's one of the things that we know company bosses are, are really trying to figure out. What's that right mix of working from an office environment or a home environment? And you know, how, how do you best balance that well-being and welfare of, of employees whilst also ensuring that you're maximising productivity what's the answer do you think yeah it's a live debate isn't it i think i mean it may may be more difficult to i mean in my opinion anyway to totally do away with offices than than some have argued um and you know multiple studies have demonstrated how offices can be really important um in the productivity value chain primarily as a place for employees to gather and organically exchange knowledge uh this is part of what economists tend to call something called knowledge spillover um and it's proved very difficult to 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 replicate that process digitally you know you can see that some roles like alan's you know in some aspects of alan's role have become more productive but at the economy level it's more nuanced i guess and the extra flexibility of the new world is very welcome for many, myself included. But I, I personally think offices will have important roles to play still for a while yet. Yeah, and we're obviously learning a lot, aren't we, through necessity. But but you mentioned, well, obviously, there's been a lot of individual breakthroughs around you know, reliability and capacity of laptops, smartphones, high-speed internet, etc. But collectively, They've come to mean a bit more as we've gone through this this forced way of of working and interacting during the crisis. So it just brings me back to the conversations we've had in the past about the fourth industrial revolution and how you've typically looked back at, at previous revolutions to see what we've learned from that. So can can we tend to find these kinds of crises create that catalyst to to really sort of break us through into that next technological innovation? 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, or at least I find it interesting. I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't think crises have to perform that role by any means, but there is interesting precedent nonetheless. So that there is a long running scrap between academics about whether or not the 1930s was the most technologically progressive decade uh, in modern US economic history. So i.e. the 1930s had the fastest measured productivity growth, which some argue by a distance. Now, this is obviously the same 1930s that played host to one of the worst and most protracted downturns uh, in US, uh, US history, the so-called uh, you know, Great Depression. But as with today, and you mentioned it just there, you found that previous far-flung breakthroughs from preceding decades, from cracking the per- periodic table to you know, widely available electricity, organized to facilitate a kind of step change in efficiency over the decade. So, so there may be an element of you know, necessity being the mother of invention, as you suggest. Well, just on that point, I, when I'm going out to clients, Nikki asked me before about uh, clients, what they speak to me about. We speak to quite a lot of entrepreneurs uh, and they, a lot of them have come from these sectors. They've made their money into these sectors. And many of the guys that I'm speaking to are really excited. So this some of this conversation we're having today it came from a, a client who said to me, Alan, the next 10 years, they could be the most exciting. And then we had a conversation about machine learning, quantum computing, cloud computing, AI, possibly 3D printing, healthcare. Internet of Things, there's so many things. And the, the conversation is, is, is really around not just one thing that's going to happen, not one thing, that, but the convergence of all of these things happening together and how that's going to change our lives. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Will, I remember you talking about the role of, of general purpose technologies, so innovations with multiple applications and you know, clearly what... Alan's just spoken there, you know, he mentions drones, he mentions 3D printing, healthcare, tech, etc. Those things have been applied in ways that, you know, were probably not dreamt of when they were first introduced. So are there any of these elements that you think stick out for for us as, as investors or for the economy over the next five years or so? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I would first of all point out that I'm, I'm not a technologist. I, I'm, you know, people would I mean, we should all laugh. I'm more, I, of, I'm, I'm more of the other direction. I, 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 I stopped myself from laughing then. Well. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah, but certainly, I mean, just from a bystander's perspective, you know, machine learning is a branch of artificial intelligence that has seen a material up, uptick in implementation through this crisis, you know, as I think someone, I heard someone call it a battlefield upgrade. Um, and in many cases, but far from all, you are going to find that artificial intelligence will simply be quicker and better at assimilating vast amounts of information and making a related call than we are. Um, and this will or should significantly increase the efficiency of many processes across a, a whole load of sectors. And, and the amazing thing is that, you know, is that an advanced image recognition system takes about a week to train on today's computers, performing the same number of calculations necessary on some of these applications, but using the most powerful workstations available in the early 1990s, say, that would have taken hundreds of thousands of years. So, you know, the other thing I think that Alan mentioned there that, that I think is really interesting, or I've read a lot about, and I think is quite, you know, quite, quite potentially very exciting is quantum computing. It is more speculative. This you know, is one that could always remain on the horizon feasibly. However, if the stories of viable capacity being within reach bear fruit, you know, from computational chemistry to drug design to carbon sequestration, um, you could find the previous ceilings of understanding, you know, rapidly shattered. Yeah, I think there, oh, well, there's a great analogy uh, that I heard about talking about the computers and the power of AI 
um, what the limitations of these things are. So I heard a, a great one, which we said we've built robots and AI that can beat the greatest grandmasters at chess, but we haven't still beaten anything which will take the boxes, the pieces out of the box and put them on the board. <laughs> a six-year-old could do that. So I think uh, computers and robots, they're great for some things, but it's not everything. I think that's an absolutely crucial point, Alan. I think, you know, a lot of these scare stories we hear, you know, the, the image we get from sort of, you know, popular fiction is, you know, the dominant AI overlord looking to, you know, wipe humanity out as some kind of cosmic mistake as per, you know, like I say, much dystopian fantasy. You know, quite a lot of the machine advance, I think, will be about, and a lot of what the real experts talk about is about augmenting human capability. Um, the fact is that, like you say, humans are better than many of the jobs that the world economy currently makes available. We potentially have a lot more to offer, given the right inputs of education, health, and so on. Now, now one interesting aspect, you know, on this, to a certain extent, if past industrial revolutions has been the changing demands put on the workforce. So prior to the first industrial revolution in England, you know, it was so-called cottage industry that dominated, essentially, you know, family textile businesses. The Industrial Revolution essentially ripped production from the home and moved it forcibly to the kind of proliferating factories and the new and ill-prepared cities they were housed in. Now, these were frankly brutal jobs and humankind paid a short-term price in life expectancy and living conditions uh, for the pleasure. But eventually, the advent of the computer chip started a move from factories to offices, which some have described as kind of a, a boon for brains over brawn. Now, some are suggesting that the incoming revolution in AI and robotics could further change the skills needed. So emotional intelligence and empathy, domains that will surely remain unique to us for a while, you would have thought, may become the most valuable traits um, that, that that we can offer in the world economy of the future. As, as my wife says, I'm in deep trouble if that's the case, but some some <laughs> will surely prosper. Yeah, well, it was, uh, I think, well, it was uh, Stephen Hawking. He famously said... AI will either be the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. So it's one of those two things. Well, it's hard to disagree with him. Well, I guess I guess the trick here is that data data is the information that has been built over the past, and of course, within that comes all the human foibles and you know, not not always the pleasant things. So, of course, if we if we don't consider that, then the ability to just create more of the same as opposed to improvements would be the worry, wouldn't it? But luckily, there are greater brains than <laughs> uh, than us looking into this and working on it. And and that sort of brings me to another element of of you know as we think about what where this crisis brings us now. So thinking about future productivity, obviously the health and longevity of the workforce and demographics, etc., is a is a key element of productivity in the future, notwithstanding AI improvements and, and what, what that could bring. But given the health crisis that we've had, there is speculation that we're, we're at the cusp of potentially another surge in, in life expectancy and, and better health after what we've gone through globally over, over the last 15 months or so. So what do you hear on that, Will? Yeah, I mean, I, I, first thing is, I mean, I think speculation is the right word to use, but I think some are plausibly arguing that the cost-benefit calculation of investment in health has changed, has been changed for a long time by this crisis. You know, the link between health and economic outcomes, which has always been there, frankly, but possibly less visible, less realised, less discussed, may be helpful in driving 
investment, attention, brain power uh, to, to, to the sector. And some are arguing that that will yield results. I, I think also of that link back to the first industrial revolution, with some arguing that one of the contributing factors was a, you know, a run of bountiful harvests in the 1730s in England. And the surge in available nutrition happened as a generation of future innovators was born. Um, and they would go on to change the world forever for everyone. So, you know, there's, 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 you know, there's really interesting, uh, applications or, or there'll be really interesting. This crisis could result in all sorts of positive things potentially in the longer term. We, we can hope anyway. Yeah. In healthcare, well, I think some of the, what I've been reading certainly and looking at is people have looked at cure before and it's, I think mm. we'll turn to prevention. Mm. And I think the watch is a really interesting one. And it's gone from telling the time when I was young uh, to start monitoring your, steps then your exercise then your heart rate there's all various stories about where this is going and then if you look at some of the words from apple from uh, tim cook in the in 2019 conference he was talking about the greatest contribution apple can make to societies actually in healthcare rather than technology so yeah, i think it just shows where this one's going mm, interesting yeah sort of sectors break down don't they with technological innovation it's sort of breaks those segments and sectors down. So another piece to think about is risks. Will, what, what about uh, when we talk about the potential for revolution, the, the fourth stroke, fifth industrial revolution, what, what can we say with regards to the risks that lay ahead? Yeah, I mean, we, we've discussed this a lot on this podcast before, but, but you know, the major point to get across is that industrial revolutions have historically proved to be you know, chaotic jobs, industries are destroyed in one corner of the economy, uh, only for new ones to be created in another. And history is littered with examples of states that have managed to ride, you know, one technological wave, only for the winners of that wave to become entrenched, overly powerful within that economy, and therefore able to stop the next wave uh, of technological change in order to protect their own uh, status and wealth. Uh, and actually, you know, uh, you know, there's the early Venetian Empire founded on this uh, this very problem in many people's eyes. Interestingly, and I think in, in, in some ways since, the problem is often encapsulated with a famous episode in English history when a guy called William Lee, uh, an inventor, approached Elizabeth I, one of our greatest monarchs, uh, for a patent uh, for his knitting machine. Uh, and she said no, absolutely not, uh, on the grounds that it would make beggars of her people by uh, depriving them of, of employment. And, and the UK is seen as ex escaping this trap of um, you know excessive executive power um, at the end of the 17th century with the so-called glorious revolution. So parliament starts to get a greater say. Uh, and this is the tricky thing, is how do you you know, how do you manage this chaos and maintain your social contract within a country at the same time? Because you have to allow these forces uh, sufficient leeway to operate, to deliver those optimal outcomes. Uh, but you've got to you know, acknowledge at the same time that it's incredibly difficult for the people, uh, society involved. And are there any other factors beyond that, as you sort of described, that, that suppleness of the state? Yeah, I mean, the other familiar theme is really about speed of adoption, dissemination of best practice. And, and as we've, we've pointed out many times, you know, this is something that we've talked about or borrowed from Andy Haldane, the, you know, the chief economist for the, the ex-chief economist for the Bank of England. But this is something that the UK has lagged on in recent times. 
for one reason or another, but it, but it's a key aspect of uh, input into product the productivity equation. You know, it's not just coming up with the ideas, the innovation. You've then got to make sure that all companies and the most of you know society operates at that frontier uh, as quickly as possible. And those have proved to be the countries that have managed to benefit the most, as those who've managed to disseminate that best practice the quickest and the most effectively. Yeah, I think well, there's a couple of ones that I think are really interesting. Uh, my career, I've uh, I've developed some systems in my time. Mm. And uh, I know the hardest part of uh, building up any of these software is not the development of it, but it's actually just getting people to use it effectively. Um, but with the pandemic, we've all been on, as we are on now, a 12-month intensive IT training course. So we've been much better at accepting and using uh, technology. And I think that's one of the things that will happen as we come out of this. It's this adoption which is really important. That's so true. I guess the message that I'm hearing from you guys is that innovation can come from pretty much any corner at any time. And often the main beneficiaries of it are, are, are far from the source of that innovation. I know you, you, you often use the example of the, the shipping container, Will, and how the gains don't necessarily accrue to the shipping industry, but, but much more broadly. I guess the same is true of a wider application, for example, of the, of the messenger RNA vaccine technology that, that we've seen. Correct. I, I think diversify. It's, a, it's an old and boring message, but you need to get the entire world economy working day and night with your savings, not just some recently successful part of it, because there is that very unpredictable element about uh, where the ideas come from, when they come, and where the beneficiaries are, and they can all be very different. Yeah, just to finish off for me, I love the story about the shipping container. The shipping container was first uh, was first used in 1956, but it was the Vietnam War, so it was a crisis which really promoted the use of this. And going back to uh, going back to what we're talking about today, Nikki. It's that uh, innovation coming out of a crisis that I think will be really interesting for investors. And so when people are talking to me about should I invest, well, as we talk about over the next few months, we're at the behest of the markets of sentiment. Over the next 10 years, I think it could be really exciting. Agreed. Well, that sounds like a well-put way to end today's podcast. So, Alan, Will, thanks very much. Thank you to our listeners and subscribers. And do please get in touch with any ideas of things that you'd like to hear us talk about or experts that you'd like us to bring in. We're always willing to to get your bright ideas and innovate on today's theme. So thank you very much. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.